Okay, Hebrews chapter 11. And the passage we... Oops, excuse me. This thing put away. We are on verse 28. Hebrews 11, 28. Well, maybe we should go back and just read the... See if I can find my notes here. Starting with verse 23. We'll, we'll start studying on 28, but let's get this whole story here in front of us. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. So that is the section about Moses. This kind of the centerpiece of this chapter about faith. And Moses in the Exodus serves as an example of what faith is and what, it, what people of faith do what it's like to have faith. And in order to encourage the Hebrews who were wavering in their faith and were considering going back to just temple Judaism rather than continuing with Christ. So the author of Hebrews is encouraging them by these incidents out of the Old Testament. Now this is a very common Jewish way of proceeding. If you read the various speeches in the New Testament, particularly in Acts, you see that the way they would motivate their fellow Jews was be reminding them of their own history. Judaism is very much about history and remembering. And it still is to this day. They've had their feasts and even the people who typically aren't even believers um, that are agnostic or they don't pay much attention to their Judaism. On those feast days, like Yom Kippur, they go to the synagogue. And also uh, Passover, typically. And these feasts are markers that remind people of their history. And so when there are these disputes or sermons or exhortations where one of the authors of the Bible is speaking to Jewish people to motivate them, as, as the book of Hebrews is, they will go to history. And Stephen, if you read Stephen's sermon where he was martyred, he recounted the history of Israel. He recounted the people of faith who listened to God, who believed God, and then the people of disobedience 
who rebelled against God. And having laid all that out, then his process was to put before these people that they were like the disobedient ones and not the faithful ones. Now, Jesus did the same thing in Matthew 23. Jesus said that they were the ones who uh, fancied themselves, these leaders of his day, they fancied themselves as standing in a line of the great people of faith. But he said, no, you are the sons of the ones who killed the prophets. You're sons of disobedience. And so that is this, how this disputation goes. And if you could convince the people they were on the wrong side of this, that they were like the disobedient Jews, not the people of faith, the, the goal was to bring people to repentance or bring people to faith. So here we have the people who, at according to chapter 10, had endured ill treatment for their faith and who had taken joyfully the seizure of their goods and who had at one time shown uh, sympathy to prisoners and were people of faith, now are being tempted to go back. And so this mentioning of Moses would be calling them to the higher understanding. The, the, the true uh, understanding of faith is the per- person like Moses, the one who obeys, the one who believes, the one whose faith is active. So that brings us here now to verse 28 with that background. By faith he kept the Passover. What was the Passover all about? They had a series of plagues, right? And the, the there was a plague, and then the, magic, the magicians would try to duplicate it. And then they had another plague, and they'd try to duplicate it, and to a certain degree they could. But eventually they couldn't duplicate any more of them. But Pharaoh, every time he got over the plague, he'd go right back to his old hard-hearted ways. And he wouldn't let the people go. So the final plague was the uh, death of every firstborn in Egypt. And God instructed Moses and the people to keep this Passover and to put the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their doorposts so that when the judgment came, when the, when the destroyer came, he would pass over them. And so that, thus we got the term Passover. So that um, story is found in Exodus 12, 3 through 14. So let's turn to that. Exodus 12, 3 to 14. Yes. Yes, they they were polytheistic and they had gods for this, that, and the other thing. And so the plagues were demonstrating that their gods were powerless. Yeah, that God had a power over all. Uh, Oh yeah, that's right, we've got an amplification. I'll repeat what he said though. Um, He asked about the plagues and their relationship to the gods of Egypt. and, And that's exactly right. And so by God destroying these or bringing them out as a curse, it showed the uselessness of the Egyptian God. Now I said uh, Exodus 12, 3 to 14. So starting with verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are to each one take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to the house 
are to take one according to the number of the persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you're to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both his head and legs along with his entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. That's, that's what you're talking about there. He executes judgment against the gods of Egypt. <coughs> I am the Lord. And in verse 13 says, And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast of the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. So here we have, it's interesting where it says in verse 12, I will go through the land and strike down the firstborn. So this is a direct judgment of God. And the, the way of escape from the judgment was to, in faith, listen to the Lord, and there was a blood atonement. So this is part of a consistent theme throughout the Bible. The only way to escape God's judgment is through the blood atonement that he ordains, not just any other tongue, but whatever one he ordains. Um, so it's important to follow the Lord's instruction, but also to do so in faith and according to how he laid it out. So he says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So that was how they escaped the, the direct judgment of God. Well, you get, uh, yeah, the question was, uh, were there any, uh, uh, collaboration of this by secular historians? When you get back to the time of Moses, it gets more scant, but you do have Egypt and you do have, uh, the, the pharaohs were real, the, the times, the places were real, the, uh, things that they did were real. But, uh, I'm not sure exactly how much there was because it's an awful long time back in history. Yes. I thought it was when the Egyptians had losses like that or an embarrassment that they would cover that up or not record that kind of history. Yeah, they were, they're not going to record their own defeat. Now, you get a little newer into history and you do get interesting things that, that come right from the Bible and from secular history. The Sennacherib stone, I think, is one of the most interesting ones. But it also shows what you're saying. If you read, uh, Isaiah, I think, in Isaiah, where it talks about the defeat of the Assyrians... And their king Sennacherib, when Hezekiah was king, they found this um, cylinder that has the same history, only written from the Assyrians. And if you read both of them, 
they aren't really saying anything different. It's just that the Sennacherib ones leaves off the point where he gets defeated. Okay? And uh, the, according to the Bible, Jerusalem was under siege. Well, the Sennacherib stone says, I had Hezekiah, naming the king, like a bird in a cage. And he was surrounded. But it doesn't say what, you know, the end of the story. They don't say, yeah, and then God came and killed our army. But it's enough to show that it's the same history, it's the same event, the same place, the same characters. Now, of course, it's always going to be like that. If you're writing your own history, you're not going to tell, you're going to put the best slant you can on it. So anyhow, uh, there's the the events of the Exodus, um, there's nothing that, uh, would you say, uh, contradicts what else we know about history. The biblical history itself is inspired. I see there's some more verses here to read, and that's verses 21 through 30. So let's go back to Exodus 12 again. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of this house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer. Notice that phrase, now we're going to see that in Hebrews. You will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall reserve this event as an ordinance for you and for your children forever. It will come about when you enter the land which the Lord will give you, which he has promised, you shall observe this right. And it will come about when your children will say to you, what does this right mean to you? That you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt. And when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. Then the sons of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose in the night and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Notice how this is to be, your sons are supposed to ask you, what does this mean? If you come to the... um, Seder that we do annually here, uh, you'll, which Carl does, you'll see how this has been kept and how these things are integrated. And it's the Lord's, one of the Lord's ways of keeping the Jewish people together and keeping their history, um, indelibly a part of their understanding of who they are. That's why we still have Israel, we still have the Jews. Because of these events that the Lord did that they, that they remember. Now, we, what we're studying though is in the New Covenant, what we realize that, that, that they need to come to realize is that the true Lamb of God wasn't just those lambs, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that every one of these Passovers was looking forward to the great Passover that when Christ Himself died on a Passover, He was crucified and he, in his death, was paying for the sins, not only of Israel, but of the world. 
And the thing of faith is important because notice here Hebrews 11:28 by faith he kept the Passover. Um, faith is evident, is demonstrated by obedience. They could have said, "Okay, we believe God," and then don't avail themselves of the blood, not make his sacrifice, don't put the blood on the doorpost. What would have happened? Yeah, they would have lost their firstborn. And they, they would not have escaped the judgment. So, you can say, I believe in Jesus. There's a lot of people that believe in Jesus. But they haven't come in faith. Realizing they need a blood atonement. See, when God uh, God's wrath comes, there needs to be an atonement in order to escape from it. And otherwise, it'll indiscriminately kill all who aren't covered by blood. Yes. And the, the placement of the blood would be at the head of the door. Yeah, and there's three spots. On the two sides. Right. Which would, it's also the indicator of where Christ was pierced. Okay. What was the what was the point of the firstborn of the shadow? Go ahead and say it in there so everybody can hear you. What was the point of the firstborn of the cattle being? Just in order to exasperate the level of judgment on Egypt, so that they realized that this wasn't that this was an act of God, and that they were going to have to let the people go. It's not that the cattle were guilty, but that's what they lost. So, and it worked. They let the people go. Correlate with the people that say it's unfair that those that have not been chosen of God. Well, if there's, you know, there's no injustice with God, right? And if God makes a public, I'm going to preach on the death of Christ this morning in Matthew 27, but he was crucified publicly and in front of many witnesses. And the message of Christ's death is published to be, if we, if we preach the gospel like we're supposed to, universally people hear that God is come, God is coming again in judgment. God's wrath is real. A blood atonement is necessary. Christ paid for, paid for that. He made the blood atonement and you need to flee to Him in faith. If we preach that and people choose to spurn it, they don't have anything to say. You know, uh, what does it say in Romans 10? Who shall say, well, it's up in heaven? Who's going to go there and get it? Or is it the depth of the sea? No, the word that we're preaching is very near you, even in your mouth, is word of the faith that we're preaching. And then he goes on and talks about the resurrection. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus the Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And then it talks about the need of a preacher to go out with this message. So God publishes universally the terms. And if anyone says doesn't come by faith, they shall not escape from the judgment. Okay, let's see if we can get back on track here. It did me, I'll tell you one thing about this mic. It made my life easier when it came to getting the, the audio, although now our server's down. Uh, oh, um, after all that. I heard on the radio the other day one of, one of the preachers was saying that. Uh, Perhaps a person didn't have enough light to save him, but there was definitely enough sin to convict him 
think that that might answer a, a question there. But the, the Bible says even though a person was raised from the dead, they're not going to believe. So it, it just takes. God has given us what is necessary. Yeah. And, and what we do with that makes the big difference. Right. We well, need there's to. There's enough sin to convict everyone. Yeah, and, and it says in Romans one that the that even just seeing general revelation was enough. Uh, to hold all in account. Now, if we do come to God by faith, this may seem incongruous. I have two email dialogues going on right now with people who just want to understand this, but they're having a hard time with it. They say, well, if God, if God does it, because I believe in monergism, that means salvation is an act of God alone, not a cooperative effort between man and God. That was the issue of the Reformation. Right? The Roman Catholic Church believes in synergism. The salvation is man and God working together. And the Reformers believed in monergism. Salvation is an act of God. And so people are saying, well, how can it be? And you know, why doesn't God save everybody? And asking all these questions that nobody can answer. I don't know why God doesn't save everybody, but I know He commands everybody to repent and believe. But if, and so if we don't, it's because we chose not to and we rebelled against God. And if we do, it's because God showed us grace and but by the grace of God, there go I. And I've told these people in the email that that seems incongruous. It's exactly what the Bible says. And I can show you over and over so you're best off to trust God and believe Him. And don't try to solve problems that the Bible doesn't even try to solve. So if indeed we come to Him... Thank God for His grace. And don't, we should never sit back and say, well, I'm more virtuous than the other people out there. Or there was more merit in me. That's which was the doctrine of Rome. You had to add to the merits of Christ something that was in you. And, uh, and if you read the anathemas in the Council of Trent on the, on the canons, in the canons on justification, very eye-opening. Go get Trent out and see why they anathematize all the reformers. And they were fighting against monergism. They did, they said if anybody says this is faith alone, let them be anathema. They say grace alone, let them be anathema. You know, and if anybody, whatever we believe, we're anathematized in the Council of Trent. And MacArthur was preaching on that. Okay, so the blood atonement is there. It's public. We're to proclaim it to all people. There's a universal call. And if someone refuses to repent and come to God on his terms, it shall be their own doing that they are uh, abiding under judgment. But if someone does, by God's grace, see the light and repent, that person came by grace alone, faith alone, through Christ alone, and the glory goes to God alone. All right. Can you accept that? All right. That's how that's how it's explained in the Bible. Now, uh, this word "he who destroyed" Hebrews eleven twenty eight. So that he who destroyed, it comes from the Septuagint of Exodus twelve twenty three, uh, where it call it says the destroyer. Now, notice here that it says that God said, "I will come." So God, this is a direct judgment of God. Now, one of the things that you need to realize about the direct judgment of God is that when God brings direct judgment, He spares the righteous. Alright? See, this is an example. In fact, it's called exemplary judgment in theology. It's an example in history that's not 
comprehensive. It's not the final judgment where all, all are held into account once for all. That's yet future. But occasionally in history, God will come and bring judgment. He did in the time of Noah. All right, when he wiped out that ancient world, he did in the time in, in the time of Sodom, when he came and wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah, and he did in Egypt when he came and brought the death of the firstborn and brought the people out of Egypt. Now, in an exemplary judgment, God will uh, not bring the calamity on His own people who come to Him by faith. I have an article that's going to go out Wednesday that explains all this because I'm seeing so much confusion um, about this matter because of all these hurricanes and earthquakes and mudslides. and So the, the secular news people are asking about it. And I was uh, on Good Morning America. Diane Sawyer, was, they, they were showing these clips of different preachers saying this was God's judgment on, on uh, New Orleans. And do you know what Diane Sawyer asked? I thought it was a very good question. She said, well, if this was God's judgment on New Orleans, I saw a video of all these churches underwater, and there was these, these uh, establishments in the French, French Quarter that were high and dry. So why did God wipe out the churches and leave all these uh, brothels and stuff standing? What's the answer? Lois, very, very, uh, what else can you say? They were there first. They had the high ground. Well, in my article, I, I make some categories for people to understand these things. And the fact is that calamity, when calamity comes, it's a sign that we're in the end times and that life is short. But it doesn't discriminate between the righteous and the unrighteous. And you can't look at who suffers in a general calamity and determine who the righteous were. It's not possible to do so. Now, the way we illustrate this in the article is by the fact that there were two events in Sodom. One of them was a general calamity, and the other one was an act of God. The first one was the War of the Kings. And in the War of the Kings... When these bunch of kings, are, uh, these are like little city-states back then, so their king was just a king of a city. They went in and they defeated Sodom, hauled away Lot and the king of Sodom, captive, and a bunch of plunder. Now that particular calamity, being defeated in war, did not discriminate between the righteous and the unrighteous. And when Abraham came and rescued his nephew, he also rescued the king of Sodom. He was under no command from God to kill the king of Sodom at that point. In fact, he gave him the plunder and sent him back home. But then later, when it was a direct judgment of God, then the Lord told, first there was authority of spokesperson to say that's what it was. It was the Lord himself and his angels. He talked to Abraham about it. Abraham pleaded with God to spare the righteous. And God did spare Lot and his family. And his direct wrath is only poured out on, on the wicked, not on the righteous. So those are two categories, and you can't confuse them. And when we do confuse them, we tell the world the wrong message. And Diane Sawyer is very right to raise that question. Because if this is God's message, it doesn't make sense to me.
They can't understand it. Real message is, unless you repent, you shall all lies perish. Here's, uh, uh, thanks to North, here's MacArthur talking about this. And um, I was saying this, and MacArthur has a fantastic series of radio shows that say the same thing. He says there's one lesson to learn from Hurricane Katrina or any other calamity. And that is that we're living on borrowed time, so to speak. Our, we have no idea how long we're going to be alive. One day we're here, the next day we're gone. And we see these people that were going about their life, just like in the time of Noah. Right? They were going about life and all of a sudden they were washed away. That's what it says in the New Testament. They were gone. Yeah, I wonder if we'd get to her. Anyhow, that's the message. And so what it means is, I need to be right with God because if some calamity wipes out my city, I may be one of the people that goes. So I better know where I'm going. But if you're trying to get uh, discern God's moral will in calamities, you won't do any better than Job's comforters. Because it doesn't quite add up. Now, yeah, we could say New Orleans was a notoriously wicked city. Um, but so are a lot of cities in the world. Uh, the worst one in the whole world is Amsterdam. So far, they're still sitting there. But I'll tell you what, when the final judgment comes, no one will escape. Absolutely not a single person. And it will be like this exemplary judgment of Egypt. No household escaped. It was just the firstborn, but it was an example. And um, it had the effect of prompting the exodus. Okay, um, where should we go? Uh, Kathy, do you want to read 1 Peter 1, 2? And Tyler will bring you a mic to do it. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be unlimited. Okay, it talks about the blood of Jesus Christ there. Um, I say I have a note here to quote uh, Lane, so let me see what that was. 376. All attention, here's William Lane, all attention is concentrated on Moses' celebration of the Passover in response to God's command. As the critical event in the deliverance of the people from enslavement, Moses' careful attention to the detailed instruction of God was evidence of faith. It demonstrated how firmly he believed God's promise that he would spare the firstborn of Israel when the angel of death executed the sentence of judgment upon Egypt. So the fact that Moses believed what God said and took his prescribed action and did so according to the details of what the Lord said was evidence that Moses had faith in God. Now, what's the evidence of faith for us? That we respond and take whatever action is the Lord has put before us. Now, what I see is more and more uh, 
profound and important as I watch history unfolding, and particularly the deceptions and difficulties uh, uh, prevail in these last days, is that it's very important that we come to God on His terms and that we trust the means He's given us. Right? And I just got a phone call. Let me, let me give you an example. How's God going to change our lives? Well, I believe in means of grace, not spiritual disciplines, spiritual formation. they got all these new things out there uh, that are going to solve people's problems that somebody invented. Well, this works. I'm a Christian. I, worked, I did this and I invented this process and it's going to make people feel better. Well, I got a call two days ago from a lady in Ohio. And she said, I found your article on theophostics in the, on the Internet, and I, I'm, in, I'm in desperate need of help. She said, my sister went and got this theophostic ministry, and she became convinced that she was a victim of satanic ritual abuse, that she'd been molested by my father, who's now dead. And she is so convinced of these things, she's been calling the police, and, she, and the police have been showing up around the different relatives, questioning them about all this horrible, wicked stuff. The only thing is, none of this happened. All these memories happened when she went into this altered state of consciousness under, the, under this Christian counselor. And then she starts remembering things, and the counselor said, well, that's why you're messed up. All these things happened. And, and so here's this whole family devastated. The memory of their parents just wickedly defiled. And, and this lady that called me, who's a Christian, she said, I was in that same home. There was, if, they were, if, we, if we had satanic rituals going on, I would have known it. This is just, it's just the whole thing is just crazy. But what's happening is people are saying, well, I've got some problems, I've got some hurts, I've got some things I'm not happy with, so I've got to go get some help. And somebody invented something. Now, what happens if you come to God on His terms and trust Him the, with the means He's given us. You're not going to end up like that. If you just come and avail yourself of the means of grace, God will change your life. The Word of God changes us. It, it changes us from the inside out. Yeah, um, and so as we come and we believe God and we pray together, we read the Bible together, we sit under the Gospel, we sit under the Word of God, we encourage one another and, and fellowship together, what happens is God helps us. It's not that we don't have any problems. But we're not going to fall into that pit of going outside of God's means. So faith, if you come to God by faith, you have to do it the way He said. And He didn't say, go get in an altered state of consciousness and have somebody recover a memory. I don't see that in the Bible. Sam? I'm a testament to what you're talking about is not in theophostics, but as a, in a, in, um, a practicing Scientologist at one time. But what uh, the testament is that when, you, when you're saved by the grace of God, you are looking forward, you're looking to the light. You come out of darkness. But in Theophostics and Scientology and all these other things, you're always looking to the darkness. You're always looking back. You never, you never look forward. Yeah. Because you think that something behind you is, is holding you back or making you act the way you are. But when you come to the grace of God, you only, you only look forward and you only look toward the light. Good. Thank you, Sam. Um, the, uh, that's a good point. The, the whole theory is you've got to drudge around in the past to try to find out what makes you the way you are now. Well, 
we know why we're now, we are now, we are descended from Adam and we're sinners. But the grace of God is helping us change. Yes, Mike, here's, here's your. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, psychology and theophostics or whatever else you have, um, tries to, it tries to separate the sin from the sinner. In other words, there's a reason that I did this. And, uh, it wasn't my own iniquity. The own, uh, the own evil uh, inside of me, the old self, it was because uh, this happened to me or because somebody did something to me. And I think when you come to Christ, when the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, enters you, He shows you that that no, you are evil and you need um, what Christ has done for you. In other words, if we can separate the sin from the sinner. Uh, then we don't need the Savior. But when you're, when you come to the conclusion that yes, I am a sinner, I deserve hell, I deserve judgment because there is iniquity in me, and <clears throat> then you can, then you can make the step to, you know, I need help from outside, I need, uh, somebody to, to cleanse me, somebody to, uh, atone for what I've done. Uh, but all these other uh, methods, and I think psychology is one of the great ones where they, you know, uh, you know, get rid of your guilt because you're not guilty. No, I am guilty and I need a Savior. And, uh, yeah. Amen. Yeah, uh, we, we don't have problem with guilt feelings. We have problem with actual guilt. All right, and the blood of Jesus washes that away. And just reminding ourselves of these things is a means of grace. It, I, I, I'm not kidding you. <laughs> You'll know. You, you sit under the teaching of the Word of God, and you pray with one another, and open up the Scriptures together. It, it, it's not like boom, some magical thing happens. But you do that over a lifetime, and you start becoming conformed to the image of Christ. It's one of the important things about coming to a Bible study similar to this is that you can learn the Word of God and learn proper godly responses in situations and you can be prepared for the calamities that will come your way right. as opposed to not studying the Word of God and get blindsided when something comes your way. Exactly. So, let's go to verse 29. Hebrews 11:29. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians when they attempted it were drowned. So, um, notice earlier, last week we were talking about Moses by faith left Egypt and we, not fearing the wrath of the king, and we were saying that was the first time, 40 years earlier. And even though it didn't look like faith because he had killed the Egyptian and he was in trouble, um, what we said about that is that faith overcomes our fear. It's not that we don't have fears. But faith will help us overcome our fear and do the right thing by God's grace. And so there's plenty of fear happening here. And you can, let's turn to the Exodus 14, 13 through 20. That's Exodus 14, 13 through 20. What's this? Well, let's go back in verse 11. 
Then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Notice the great faith. <laughs> why, why have you dealt with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But look at verse 13. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. And the Lord will fight uh, for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. And as for you, lift up your staff and stretch it out and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through in the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Hold that thought. I'm going to come back to verse 17. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of God moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came, it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was a cloud along the darkness, yet no one did not come near the other, did not come near the other all night. How far was I going to go here? Through 30. Okay. Ah. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. Now, before we go any further, let me talk about verse 17 and 18. Notice how this is portrayed in the Bible. I will be honored through Pharaoh. How is God going to be honored through Pharaoh? By drowning him, his army in the Red Sea. I heard John MacArthur one time preaching on this, and I, when he said what he did, it made a gasp. There was 1,200 pastors at this, at this place where I was. And he said something that made everybody there gasp, and somebody asked him about it later. He says, God will be just as glorified in the judgment of the wicked as he is in the salvation of his own, of the righteous. God will be glorified both in judgment and salvation. And then somebody, because he was preaching on this passage in 2 Corinthians about uh, a sweet savor of life and death, depending on what's, whether you believed or not. And so afterwards, in the question time, people just go, oh, what did MacArthur just say? How could he say that? So somebody asked him, I said, well, how could you say that God is uh, glorified in, in judging the wicked? And he said, because he's destroying the full orb of his attributes as being a merciful God and a just God. And he says, I didn't say God took as much, just as much pleasure in judging. Because the Bible says he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. So he said, I'm not saying that, but I am saying God will receive the full glory that he deserves, whether it be in salvation or in judgment. So here it says he's going to be honored by Pharaoh. Um, that's one of the things that the Bible does say. And if you don't believe that that would be thematic, just read the book of Revelation. 
as God is pouring out His wrath, the martyrs who are in heaven are honoring God and saying, you know, declaring God's mighty works as being a good thing, that He's avenging their blood. So He stretched out His hand, and the land it became dry. In verse 23, the Egyptians took out their pursuit and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. And it came about in the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. And he caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned, covered the chariots, the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry ground through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Now God told Abraham over 400 years earlier that his descendants would be serving and that God would bring them up. And ju- with many possessions and judge the nation that they'd served. And so prophecy was fulfilled. Exactly what God told Abraham would happen. And this is the beginning of the story of the 12 tribes on their way to become a great nation. God judged the Egyptians. Okay. All right, now I have some verses. Let's, um, where should we go here? How about we start with Jim and go this way? Um, Nehemiah 9-11, Jim Bukowski. And uh, Jack, well, uh, you got one Bible. I'll just give you one verse for the two of you, okay? Psalm 106, 9-11, and Noel. Oh, we lost Noel. Um, Pat? Oh. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. No, Psalm 136, 13 to 15. 136, 13 to 15. So you got to watch out in Sunday school. <laughs> you got to be on your toes around here. Okay, Jim uh, Bukowski, Nehemiah 9, 11. Oh, we got an uh, amplification for you. Right behind you there. Wait until I pay attention. Nehemiah 9.11 You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. Okay, now the reason I had you read that is that it shows you how history becomes important in the future history of Israel. Now, the occasion of Nehemiah 9 was Nehemiah's prayer as they were going back to rebuild Jerusalem. And when he went, and on that occasion, he recounted both their sins and God's mercy and the great acts of salvation in history. And so it was like a marker. We know God did this. So now we can trust Him today as we're here to rebuild this temple in the city 
We know we're here because God told the prophets, Jeremiah and, and uh, Ezekiel, that we are going to be coming back here. And so they pray and recounted all the great things God did as a way of building their faith for the present situation. And that is how uh, Jewish history is understood, as the acts of God that break into history become milestones or markers, uh, events to be remembered so that we know who God is, what his, what he's like, what he does, and how we should be responding to him. And, that's, and the feasts do that. So it's a, a people of history. Yes. We just read two verses, Nehemiah 9-11 and uh, uh, Exodus 14-28. It says that the water is covered and that the waters were deep. Yes. And there's a professor at Bethel Seminary that was trying to teach me one semester that the was the Reed Sea? The Reed Sea and just a few inches deep. Yeah, I know there's, a, there's an old story about some professor telling the students that, that, uh, it wasn't a miracle, it was just the Reed Sea. And then one of the students says, well, I still think it's quite a miracle. We drowned the whole army in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, the next passage was Psalm 106, 9 through 11. Yeah, I'd like to start before that, but that's right. He rebuked the, the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as though a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, from the hand of the enemy. He redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them survived. There is another recounting of history. In fact, in, in a lot of these psalms, they'll go and just he did this he did this he did this he did this all the way through that psalm's probably like that there's events that God did that's how they understood who God was and who they are as a people and um commemorate these things and like I said you get into the new testament and you have Stephen preaching their history to them Paul preached their history um saying here's what God did now here's how you should respond now okay psalm uh, 136 13 to 15 to him who divided the Red Sea asunder, where his loving kindness is everlasting, and made pass through the midst of it, where his loving kindness is everlasting. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, where his loving kindness is everlasting. So there we have it again. Now, why do they keep repeating this? Remind. Remind. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Now, do we have anything like that in the New Covenant? The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of an event. And every time we have the Lord's Supper, we remember the Lord's death till He comes. And that's our Passover. The Lord's Supper, is, it was the original Last Supper was a Passover. And we're remembering how it was that we escaped from death into life. And how God provided for us. And so that's an event. So very much like in a Hebrew background of the scriptures, we commemorate the Lord's Supper so that we don't forget. Every epistle Paul says, remember yeah. the great salvation that you have. Exactly. Remember it. Now, I know uh, some people, perhaps from the religious background, will say, well, this is just rote, okay? Isn't it true that a lot of people just go to church and go through the motions and they have, they've been taking communion all their life and it doesn't mean anything to them? Well, yeah. But does that mean it's not worth doing? 
I, you can make the same analogy. How many Jewish people go to Passover every year and, and don't, they don't know what it means unless they meet Messiah and really know what it means. And even within Judaism, many are just doing it because it's what you got to do so your mom and dad's not mad at you. And so you kind of keep the family together like Christians do Christmas. But nevertheless, uh, the key difference isn't the act or the lack of the act, although the act's important, but it's faith. All right? And all of these means that I'm talking about, means of grace, must be availed by faith or they will do no benefit whatsoever. So if you don't really believe that the blood of Jesus was shed for your sins, the act of receiving communion won't do you any good. You're just doing a religious ritual. If you don't really believe that you are dead with Christ and raised anew, being baptized won't do anything but get you wet. Okay. So faith is necessary. Now I'm going to quote again from William Lane who was talking about now how, how did these people have faith? Notice verse 29. By faith they passed through the Red Sea. Now you read the story. It doesn't sound like faith to me. They said, well, are you, are you going to kill us here? So how's that faith? Well, here's what it says. The, here's what William Lane, how he interprets that. The action of the people in crossing the sea indicates that they shared the faith of Moses. The biblical record is explicit that they had been terrified by the approach of the Egyptian army and had begun to complain bitterly. As in the case of Moses, faith in the reality and presence of God entailed an overcoming of initial fear that could have paralyzed them. At the critical moment, they demonstrated they were prepared to attempt the impossible at the command of God. Are you glad that God can take a fearful person and, and, and uh, change us? So they were full of fear and complaining, but yet when, when the time came, they went forward. And so it says, by faith, they crossed the sea. So I think there's hope for us cowardly people, don't you think? God can use us if we will obey Him. Now, it says the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Now, what was the difference between the Egyptians and the Israelis? Faith. Faith. The Egyptians didn't want to believe God. How many chances did they get to just believe God? How many signs did Pharaoh see before this all happened? He saw sign after sign after sign. And he could have just believed, you know, God wants to bless these uh, Jews. I think I should just, you know, leave them alone and send them with my blessings. He could have believed. He didn't have to chase after him with his army. So his unbelief was what doomed him. I think they know there's a God. <laughs> yeah, you know, unbelief is not a failure to know there's a God. It's a failure to come to Him on His terms. Now, if, if we don't believe this, well, we should, because you see it all around. I debated an atheist one time who, I asked him how he became an atheist. He was a professor at a local college here. And we did actually did this on radio. This was quite a few years ago. 
And he said, well, when I was a young man, I was kind of, you know, lost and not knowing what to do with myself when I was hopping freight trains, just going around the country. And he says, I hopped this one freight train and I slipped and I fell under the train and I should have died. But I didn't. My life was spared. And so for a moment I thought maybe there was a God, but then I decided there wasn't one. I said, what? What, what? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, does it? God spared his life, and so he decided because God spared his life, he would dedicate the rest of his life to being an atheist. Well, it doesn't make sense, but then sin doesn't necessarily always make sense, does it? Or unbelief doesn't make sense. It's just part of the sinful nature. Now, to illustrate that, when I back in 99, when I preached through the book of Revelation, I think the thing that shocked me the most was that when God starts pouring, pouring out plagues on people directly, they were supernatural, and they all knew that God was doing it. And he wiped out a third of the people in Revelation. That's what's going to happen. When, it, when the plague relented momentarily until the next one comes, what does it say? And they did not repent. And they went back, and there's one case, what was really interesting is these demons that God let these demons... Solve that problem. What did you do? I don't know. I don't know, no. <laughs> okay, anyhow... The, the, the one case, these demons are biting all these people, and then what happens when the, when the plague lifts? They go back to worshiping the demons. They go back to the idols. They know these things are evil, but they, they don't want to change. So the fact is that um, it takes the grace of God to change our hardened, sinful hearts so that we'll acknowledge Him for who He is. Pharaoh knew there was a God. Yes? Even our, our forefathers. When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea. The there. <laughs> yes, he saved them for his name's sake. Wow, that was good. Too bad that mic wasn't on. He saved them for his name's sake because he called them. So he did it for God. Did it for himself. Yeah, for his glory. Well, a good lesson, good lesson to learn here. So next week we'll start with the walls of Jericho falling down.